Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome, and thanks very much for being with us today. I just spoke with Sandra Harding about her really fantastic new book, Objectivity and Diversity, Another Logic of Scientific Research. This came out just this year in 2015 with University of Chicago Press. Now, it's a, it's a rather extensive interview, so I'll keep this relatively short, and I'll just say this is a book that is really beautifully written, really compellingly argued, and it gives us a way to think about social studies of science, analytic philosophy of science, and history of science as mutually constitutive and as working together to provide not just a way of understanding science and sciences, but also a way of practicing scientific research and philosophy about it in a more nuanced, vibrant, responsible, um, kind of plural way. So what the book does after laying out historical context in which to understand um, today's analytic philosophy of science, the way it grew up, um, the components it has, and why it's come to have some of those um, important components, it spends its chapters laying out a series of claims for thinking together about and with social ideas of diversity and epistemic ideas of objectivity alongside um, a way of a really con- complexifying and useful ways, even how we understand what and how diversity is and what and how objectivity is. The chapters take us through some really interesting case studies, um, really fascinating arguments that are going to, I think, not just provide really um, great food for readers, but also potentially a great resource for assigning in courses where you want your students, even undergraduate students, to have something science studies related around which to have really vibrant conversations and arguments in class. So this is also a very, very assignable book. Um, So I hope you have a chance to get your hands on it. We only barely scratched the surface of the riches inside these pages. And I hope you enjoy the interview. Um, I'll leave you to it, but thank you as always for listening and for your support. I'm here today to talk with Sandra Harding about her new book, Objectivity and Diversity. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Sandra, and thanks very much for making time to talk with me today. I'm really, really excited about this. Thank you. It's a pleasure to get to be interviewed for this. Well, it's a fabulous book, and I just want to say right at the beginning, um, this is a really exciting book to talk about because it so much um, and so deeply weaves together areas of STS, of science studies, of history and philosophy and social studies of science that don't um, necessarily often talk to each other. So it's a really exciting contribution to the field in lots of different ways. So that's so I'm, I'm just thrilled um, that you are able to make time. Thank you. So, Sandra, let's start out, as is traditional for the channel, by talking a little bit about how you came to the field. What brought you to work in the philosophy of science? 
Well, uh, there are two, two main influences here. Uh, one is that when I did my dissertation, which I completed in 1973, it, it was on W.V.O. Quine's epistemology. And nobody thought he had an epistemology at that point. He was thought of as a logician and an ontologist. Uh, but I was fascinated by what I even then, I think, could characterize as the beginnings of a shift away from uh, logical positivism. Um, my favorite graduate school professor was uh, had been a student of Carnap's. His name was Richard M. Martin. And we had, from the first year I entered graduate school at, at New York University, um, we had a moment of silence every fall on Carnap's birthday. And I thought, wow, this is really something. It was like being inducted into a secret society or something <laughs> like that. It was really wonderful. Um, so here I, I, my, I learned philosophy of science from a student of Carnap's. Um, he told us not to bother reading Thomas Kuhn. It was um, a, an, a piece of ephemera that would disappear. <laughs> so, of course, we immediately formed a graduate student reading group on the structure of scientific revolutions. We read it in secret and tried to sneak questions about it into the class, but he never let us get away with that. Um, then I, visiting NYU one term, was Henry Heesh, who had been Noam Chomsky's teacher. He was in linguistics at Penn. Um, and I took a course with him on Polish logic. I know that sounds like a bad joke, but <laughs> not, not to a historian of, of, of science. Um, and of course, um, there had been a positivist school uh, in Poznan in the 1930s and 2030s and 40s. But the whole idea of a different logic was just amazing to me. So these, there were these kinds of uh, intellectual uh, uh, hints of coming intellectual changes. I didn't quite understand them that way, but I did find them exciting and intriguing. Meanwhile, this was the late 1960s and early 70s, and my friends were at Mississippi Summers in the Civil Rights Movement. The women's movement was forming. How would one do feminist philosophy if one worked in epistemology and the philosophy of science. So there was this huge turmoil, and I was very involved in all kinds of politics in those days. So that's that's one set of influences on my um, entering this field in the particular way I approach philosophy of science and epistemology. Then when I started teaching in um, that night, the year I got my dissertation, 1973, and from then until now, for 43 years, I have always had an appointment in a social science department, I, starting with uh, a uh, social science college at SUNY Albany, um, and then at the University of Delaware for 17 years, I had a joint appointment to the sociology department from philosophy. I've always been in women's studies departments, which are in many places primarily social science departments. And now for uh, 20 years, I've been at UCLA in the graduate department of education. Um, I have 50 social science colleagues, 
We have 700 graduate students, and it's like living in the laboratory. I get to watch these people struggle to turn the uh, confused uh, field notes and strange surveys and interviews they've done into facts. And it's, it's fascinating. So I think that those two particular experiences uh, coming into the field in the context of the anti-authoritarian social movements of the 1960s and 70s and the beginnings of echoes of that in um, the philosophy of science on the one hand and on the other hand of always working, doing my philosophy of science in context where it was going to be used immediately. Right. It was it was came from what was happening with my colleagues and my students and returns to their work all the time. I think these two um, these two unusual circumstances, somewhat unusual circumstances um, have not only drawn me to the philosophy of science, but somehow given me permission to um, to push its envelopes in kinds of ways that um, I find exciting. That sounds sounds great, and it's actually a really nice way to segue into um, the topic and the subject of the book itself. So the book that we're talking about today raises new questions about two really central concepts in STS, objectivity and diversity. And in doing so, it allows us to animate these concepts into new kinds of relationships. It shows in many different ways um, that we'll talk about in the course of our hour today that objectivity and certain forms of diversity can be mutually supportive. Now, this is a very um, pioneering claim um, in a lot of ways, um, and I, I hope listeners will appreciate right the the ways that that claim is actually quite difficult to make um, uh, compellingly in a way that you've absolutely succeeded in, I think, in this book. And so we'll talk about this over the course of the hour. But to get us there, how did you come to focus on this particular topic and also to commit to a book-length study of this topic um, within the larger trajectory of your research? Well, I think the question of why a book on this topic is one that everybody has asked me. I mean, it it seems like such an old topic. Do we really need a book on it? And how could one write a whole? How could there be a whole book worth of things to say? Um, I first began writing on objectivity 25 or 30 years ago. I forget the exact date, probably 1992, maybe, or something like that, 80, late 80s, 78, maybe, um, uh, late 80s, yeah. Um, I first began writing on it then, and it was an issue in the civil rights movement and the women's movement. It was an issue always in the social justice movements, because the problem was not, their problem was not bad science. I mean, that's a problem. But that was not the, the main focus of the criticisms of the sciences from uh, the anti-racist, the poor people's movements and uh, women's movements of the 1960s and early 70s. Instead, it was good science. It, the very best science that most rigidly, rigorously followed the uh, rules for how to do good research was producing, nevertheless, sexist and racist and colonial and um, class-shaped 
work. So uh, this is, was very puzzling to us. We couldn't figure out what to do. At the same time, the women's movement, for example, I was closest to it at that point uh, in the uh, my early teaching days, um, was producing research in biology and in the social sciences that was empirically more reliable and comprehensive, but it was violating the norms of good research. Number one, these researchers took women's reports of their experiences as important pieces of evidence. And this was different. Doctors thought women were just complaining. Uh, other Women's testimony was uh, not valued. Um, secondly, this research was clearly directed by ethical and political values and interests. We were trying, they and we were trying to improve the conditions of women's lives. We were outraged. We were very angry at the way women were treated, and this was generating the research. So what was going on that this politically, clearly politically motivated and guided research could be producing empirically more reliable and more comprehensive results of research. There were other mysterious issues around objectivity. Um, After all, the notion of value-free objectivity had been criticized for decades, maybe even centuries. Marx always said that, uh, you know, bourgeois objectivity was certainly not value-free, whatever it might think of itself. So it had been criticized for a long time, and yet the only uh, visible alternatives to it, which were uh, subjectivism in the uh, 19th and early 20th century and relativism uh, more recently, clearly were not um, valuable strategies for the natural sciences and indeed for much of the social sciences, nor were they valuable for the social justice movements. We didn't think that Um, there was no right answer to the question, should rape be ended? We didn't think it was a matter of he says, she says. Mm -hmm. Um, So there there was these issues. Um, Moreover, uh, uh, the value-free notion of objectivity from then through now is constantly used to police the news media, their strange ways of getting balance in uh, for example, um, when dealing with climate deniers, equal time to the three climate-denying scientists they managed to locate, and on the other hand, to the thousands and thousands of uh, scientists who uh, think uh, climate change is very real, that, that journalism has had a hard time figuring out how to be objective. Um, the notion is used to police universities, particularly funding universities, uh, to police funding agencies. NSF has to be careful not to attract the attention of uh, uh, people who uh, think they're not being objective. Um, And yet there still is persistent racist, sexist, colonial, and so forth results of research being produced. Finally, as the historian Robert Proctor pointed out decades ago, there's a tendency to conflate the um, uh, presence of um, politics in research with the unreliability of that research. 
but these are not these are my examples now, not uh, Bob's. Um, nobody thinks that guns shoot crooked because the research on them is sponsored and funded by people with military interests and values. Nobody thinks that pharmaceutical products don't work because it's greedy pharmaceutical companies that are doing the research. So how come those values and interests don't damage, aren't considered to damage the reliability of research, but social justice values and interests are considered to damage that reliability? So it's this uh, amorphous set of very strange relationships to the notion of objectivity that led me to ask is there some way of addressing this whole collection of, uh, of strange behaviors um, and to ask the question, what's going on here? And so, um, as, as uh, you, you know from the introduction and so forth, um, what I argue in, in just like one, two sentences is that um, we have a kind of antique philosophy of science that, in fact, is a a residue of Cold War politics. And it is encountering a very different world, a very different set of social and political issues than those to which that notion of value-free objectivity was proposed as a solution. Um, That is, times have changed, and there were good reasons to think that uh, the best way to deal with the rise of fascism and uh, the the, um, uh, Soviet Union gulags uh, was to insist on a science that's value-free. The Vienna Circle that was mostly... uh, isn't virtually entirely socialists and many were Jews um, had brought their philosophy to the U S and encountered, encountered McCarthyism in the cold war. Um, and so it, for them to survive and for philosophy of science to survive, they made choices that certainly looked reasonable in that day, but that was, uh, what, 65 years ago? Times have changed. And so my question is, what kind of philosophy of science would be most effective for our world with its very different set of issues today? Perfect. Thank you so much. Um, and you really nicely set the stage for um, moving into the chapters of the book themselves. So the first chapter is something that lays out um, a lot of the kinds of contexts that inform really the groundwork for uh, the arguments that you're talking about. And we won't have time to get into this material um, in a whole lot of detail so that we have time to get to the arguments of the book that come later. So what I'm going to do is just kind of super briefly summarize um, part of what's going on here. So the first chapter is, or, is offering a historical context in which to understand the approaches that really dominate today's analytic philosophy of science. It looks at specifically the social conditions for scientific research and also the philosophy about scientific research that were created in two eras of significant institutional change. The first era is the post-war era of the 1940s and 1950s, and this is where we see justification for um, what's come to be known as uh, big science, right? Massive state and corporate funding of science and tech um, and research in, in the immediate aftermath of World War II. And you talk here, um, among other things, about the ways that philosophers 
were complicit in actually creating a philosophy that positioned Western science as uniquely capable of advancing human progress. Now, perhaps that's a good place to pause because that is an assumption that I think a lot of people um, will come to the book with and come to the interview that we're doing right now with without even realizing that it's an assumption that can be problematized, right? This idea that modern Western science is um, uniquely capable of advancing human progress. When most people think of science, they think of um, precisely those terms. So how, um, for you, does understanding this historical context help us understand how philosophers and philosophers of science specifically were complicit in creating um, this this idea? Well, I think, uh, as I uh, talk about in um, this chapter, uh, one, one of my projects here is to make uh, more intense and lively conversations between, set, between three different fields of um, the social studies of science, um, the mainstream, the feminist, and the post-colonial and anti-racist, those three fields. Uh, and, of course, um, that, that fabulously illuminating uh, insight uh, from mainstream science studies, post-Kuhnian science studies, that sciences and their societies co-produce and co-constitute each other has gone a long way to answer the question I'm asking there because um, these the, the sociologists and historians and ethnographers of modern Western sciences have shown how deeply modern Western sciences at different eras historically and in different parts of the world uh, were very much a part of their historical geographical moment. And so I think, so I draw throughout the book, uh, but quite a bit in this first chapter and also later in the fifth chapter on some of these histories that have been um, so illuminating. Um, And so what I want to do here is show that whereas most uh, philosophers whether they're in philosophy departments or in physics departments or wherever, um, have been have been trained to think of the social as a problem for science. I think that science studies have sh- has shown that it's a resource for the sciences themselves and certainly for understanding how science works in any particular context. Um, so. Uh, that's one, I'm not sure that's exactly the best answer to your question, but it's a start on understanding that there are many different ways to advance um, human progress, and sciences can play important roles in all of them, but there'll be different kinds of sciences. Feminist and anti-racist sciences have different concerns, different politics, they ask different questions, they make different uh, metaphysical and ontological and epistemological assumptions, uh, such as that gender is real uh, and has a, and is a force that shapes our thinking, and that um, women, uh, at the epistemological level, that, that what that women's experience is one kind of important human experience. So there, as some recent uh, books have, uh, let me just mention two of them, from within the philosophy and history of science have put the point. Um, one of them is entitled Scientific Pluralism, 
uh, that came out from uh, the University, the Minnesota School of Philosophy of Science, um, Steve Kellert, Helen Longineau, and Ken Waters. And the other one is uh, Gallison and Stump's The Disunity of Science, even within um, moderately conventional history and philosophy of science, there's a recognition that science is multiple. It's always multiple. They, we know that chemistry and uh, biology are not the same sciences. They make different assumptions and, uh, and actually converge and support each other in important ways, but they define the world differently and have different kinds of trajectories and especially at different moments in history. So the first step to understanding what's wrong with thinking in terms of how Western science uh, invoking here uh, a totalizing concept is unique, uniquely capable of advancing human progress is to recognize that there is no such thing as that Western science. There are multiple Western sciences, and they have different values and interests, and these are shaped by what interests society, particular societies at particular historical moments. I mean, after all, if people had cared about climate change, we would have had um, sustainable environments a long time ago. Uh, instead, we have uh, extremely sophisticated weaponry and great computers. But those are responses to particular historical moments. They're valuable, but they're not the only valuable kinds of sciences that can be done. And those three fields, science studies, post-colonial STS, and feminist STS, just to kind of um, also contextualize those, are also coming out of the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. And the 60s and 70s wind up being the second um, period or era of significant institutional change that you describe early in the book, right? We have a failure of third world development policies here. We have a rise of anti-authoritarian social movements. And we have an emergence of globalization. So the first chapter really lays all of this out in really beautiful detail. And I encourage listeners to go to that chapter and read because there's a lot more going on there um, than we'll be able to um, talk about in the context of our conversation. But one of the really important things that also happens in this chapter is it lays out six major arguments in the book. And these are six major arguments that claim that, in the words um, of this chapter here, the social norm of diversity and the epistemic norm of objectivity can provide mutual support for each other. This is something that's called the mutual support claim later on. Um, And these arguments are developed in the following chapters. The first argument is developed in chapter two. Here's argument one. In at least some cases, scientific and philosophical research can be directed by recognizably political, social, and cultural values and interests and still be fair to the evidence. Okay, so this is um, the claim or the argument that's explored in Chapter 2. Chapter 2 does this by looking carefully at a notion of strong objectivity that's demanded by social justice movements, strong objectivity. Um, There are various ways of understanding this. Components of a strong objectivity include um, a commitment to no single meaning or referent for objectivity, a commitment to fairness to the evidence, to one's critics, and also to the most severe criticisms of one's argument one can imagine. So we can talk more, if you'd like, about strong 
strong objectivity. Now, one of the really interesting questions um, that you explore in this chapter, though, related to this argument, is the question of how to do this, right? How does one operationalize this notion of strong objectivity? So for you, what are some of the ways, um, or some of the most important ways to, to do that, right, to operationalize here this notion of strong objectivity that you're calling for with this first argument? Uh, thank you. That's a that's a great place to um, to start this. Um, so let's start off just one step earlier. How was objectivity supposed to be operationalized? That is, how was the value free notion of objectivity supposed to be operationalized? This is the rhetorical question that teachers ask their classes. Okay. <laughs> which I'm going to answer. <laughs> um, so it, it, lots of ways, but one important one was through the design of research um, and the repetition of observations across individuals or labs or field sites. Um, so that if I did an experiment and came up with one set of results of research and you Carla repeated it and came up with a different set of um, results of research Uh, our um, listeners could inspect our uh, research uh, protocols our, our research assumptions and say that difference happened because Sandra was making racist assumptions and Carla was not That is, the standard notion of objectivity, value-free objectivity, is pretty darn good at identifying values and interests that differ between individuals. But what if you and I, Carla, are both Eurocentric? (laughs) There's nothing in that procedure of you repeating my observations or vice versa um, that will... Uh, detect that we are making Eurocentric assumptions. Um, so this is the first problem with this, with the, what I call weak objectivity. It lacks resources to identify values and interests that are shared across researchers or research groups or sometimes 500 years of civilization. Um, so the, uh, a way to I'm sure there are other ways. I know there are other ways, many ways, but the one important way to that the social justice movements have used to um, try to get some resources here is to start off research in the first place, not from the dominant conceptual schemes of the disciplines or the major institutions of society that they serve, the World Bank, the Department of Education, or whatever, but instead from the daily lives of vulnerable groups. Now, one can never get completely outside the dominant conceptual frameworks of an era. We can't fly off the surface of the earth, as Donna Haraway put the point somewhere. Um, But even just a little degree of freedom helps to be able to identify shared values and interests in the dominant institutions, for example, um, that had been hard to identify. So that is exactly what the civil rights movement, poor people's movements, and the women's movement, to take just those three, did. Um, The women's movement came to understand that there were ideals of masculinity, for example, that were entangled with ideals of being a good scientist. 
and consequently made it very difficult for the kinds of issues, the kinds of questions women had to even get to the starting point of scientific research. They were regarded as unimportant questions or women just didn't understand what the doctors were saying and so forth. So um, the strategy here is not one that I made up. I wish I had been so brilliant. Uh, Is one that was, as I indicated earlier, coming out of the social justice research projects. So the early civil rights projects and the early uh, research projects and the um, uh, feminist research in biology, the in medicine, in sociology, in economics. Um, I was able to ask different kinds of questions than those that had uh, shaped the prevailing research. The second problem with the conventional notion of value-free objectivity is that it says if you find a value or interest shaping research, stomp it out, kill it, eliminate it. (laughs) But, But that can't be right because, as I indicated earlier, Um, clearly this more reliable feminist research about women's bodies, about the double day of work, about uh, a whole bunch of issues important to women, was coming from research that was clearly guided by, motivated by, and subsequently guided by uh, feminist uh, ethical and political interests. Um, So this leaves us with a different set of questions. Which social values and interests do advance the growth of knowledge at any particular moment and which do not? And that's a very complex question with lots of different complex answers. Um, I wouldn't even attempt to uh, give more than just a hint of a guideline. Uh, Clearly, ones that have been marginalized, clearly values and interests that have been excluded are interesting ones at least to think about. It's not that all excluded values and interests are automatically going to produce uh, or going to advance the growth of knowledge. We don't need more Nazism and so forth. Um, But some may well. And so it's worth hearing what disabled people say about the design of city streets, uh, how they conceptualize, how they think the problem is ableism, we're all disabled actually most of our life uh, and most days during our life except for a few hours in the middle of the day when we're awake and I don't have a cold and are in our middle middle years and the disability theorists have been just brilliant at pointing to these deep assumptions we make about um, uh, who's abled and who isn't. So um, that's kind of a long answer to your question but Starting off thinking about research projects and a question, what questions to um, ask, what scientific questions to pursue, in the first place uh, has been this, this, the great strength of the social justice movements. It's not that they have nothing to say about the actual day-to-day conduct of research they do, um, but the, the uh, most, pa- most powerful um, questions have been the ones that focus not that that focus on these uh, institutional structures in societies that um, end up uh, disadvantaging the already most vulnerable groups. 
And I think really one of the great strengths of the book that we're talking about is that it doesn't just state this, it also models it. And this brings us into the next chapter, um, chapter three. Now, this is a chapter we are not going to have much time to talk about purely because I know if we get started on this chapter, we could talk another two hours about just what's going on in this chapter. So that's a compliment. But I want to just mark this um, and open it up a little bit for listeners. Now, um, this next chapter, chapter three, starts us off um, in a series of chapters, chapters three through six, that each explore ways that recent work in science studies can be used to bring a fresh perspective to discussions about how to move away from earlier ideas of objectivity that were um, embedded in a positivist framework um, while still maintaining a commitment to standards for reliable research. Um, Chapter three takes us into argument number two. The mutual support claim that we talked about earlier has global implications. And it shows this by um, really modeling this in a case study um, that shows us how starting research from, in the words here of this chapter, the daily lives of poor women in the developing world can actually help us understand why development policies have failed to eliminate uh, poverty. This chapter argues that failing to address women's issues directly in developmental contexts actually damages both women and the possibility of achieving the goals of development projects. And it argues that recognizing the value of desires, of needs of different women can actually improve the objectivity of mainstream development thinking. Now, we don't have time to get into the details of this um, because there are four more chapters that I want to make sure we talk about. But I want to just mark for listeners, it's very unusual to see in a book on philosophy of science a chapter that really takes us into a case study at this in, at this depth, right, in this um, detail, and shows us, here's how you do it. Here's why it matters. Here's an example taken from a context where you might think, this is all about values and judgments. How can we, you know, how can this improve objectivity? And really showing us, here's how it improves um, objectivity. Here's what we do. Here's why this is important. So listeners who are particularly interested in um, both a case study that models these methods and also in reading more about issues of women um, in the developing world, in the global south, in reading about what even those categories, global south and developing worlds, um, might mean and the work they might do, um, will have a lot um, of really great stuff to read in Chapter 3. Could I just add one sentence to that? Of course. Uh, Some people may think, well, what's development, third world development, got to do with science and technology? Uh, But I start off by pointing out that uh, third world development was, from its very beginnings, conceptualized as the transfer of modern Western scientific rationality and technical expertise from the developed to the underdeveloped in the language of the day societies. One can see it in um, President Truman's 1949 inaugural speech, where he clearly uh, says that, thank goodness, we now have modern scientific rationality and technical expertise to um, eliminate poverty and to eliminate the misery of the lives of people in underdeveloped societies. So this is very much a science and technology issues issue in addition 
to, of course, being a post-colonial and feminist and, and so forth, uh, we get to see what, sci- the, what scientific rationality and technical expertise have meant in that context of 1949 through the present day. Now, as we move to Chapter 4, we move to Argument 3 and to one of my favorite chapters. Argument 3, making a case for the reliability of many assumptions and practices in indigenous knowledge systems is important, right? And so Argument 3 is really about making a case for indigenous knowledge systems um, as sciences, as being part of the conversation that we're having when we're having a conversation about science. And this chapter turns our attention to a fascinating issue that emerges from post-colonial STS. This is the reevaluation of indigenous knowledge systems, indigenous sciences as reliable and valuable. Now, the chapter here is committed to taking indigenous knowledge seriously as real science instead of marginalizing it as myth, as magic, or as superstition. And this is a bold claim, um, and it's a different kind of claim than we might read about in other kinds of books that say, and there are lots of books that do this, right? Hey, indigenous knowledge is important. It's not the same thing as science but let's read it anyway. But really, it's not the same thing. This chapter is, doing, is really doing the opposite. Okay, um, so I'm not going to ask you to define indigenous knowledge, right? The, because the chapter is very, very sensitive in raising the issue that, hey, you know, this concept itself can be um, talked about and opened up and debated. Um, but what I'd like to do is just mark two examples that you talk about here and ask you to open up one of them in this context. So two examples um, that you give us that illustrate the problems between or the problems with the divide between local and universal knowledge are, on the one hand, Pacific Islanders navigation, super fascinating, and also knowledge of Cree hunters in James Bay, Canada. Okay, so as a way perhaps of um, really getting at the heart of what you think is most important about this chapter, um, do these hunters practice science? Why does it matter? And what do we gain from entertaining the possibility and taking seriously the possibility that they do? That's a great question. Um, So, of course, um, Cree goose hunters in James Bay, Canada, um, are not doing high-energy physics. They're not doing what I was trained up to think of as real science. But the issue is that they certainly – the issue – the issues are multiple here. The issue is, fundamental issue is that modern Western science has been deeply entangled with indigenous knowledge systems from its origins through to the present day. And there are many similarities between modern Western science and even such truly indigenous um, uh, knowledge systems as those of the Cree goose hunters that make di- very different assumptions about nature and social relations than high energy physics does. Um, the the point here is to create a, a space. I'm not saying Cree goose hunting is the same as equally talented as or any such comparative thing as modern Western science, but rather let's just just for a moment suspend all the dear readers suspend all those differences you immediately think of between uh, the Cree hunters who don't get PhDs in physics or biology, you don't wear lab coats, X, Y, Z. Um, and let's, what would ha- what can we learn if we, if we look at 
um, what's similar and what's mostly valuable in the way Cree goose hunters pursue their um, practices. The question, is it science, is not one that can be given a yes or no answer. Uh, it depends what you mean by science. What I want to do is create a, a, an intellectual space here to actually think about a few things. Number one, Cree goose hunting is extremely reliable. They can figure out uh, the right kinds of environments to sustain the supplies of geese, which are their main food supply. Um, they uh, imagine themselves fully communicating with geese. They make ontological and epistemological assumptions that are extremely foreign to us in uh, who hang around modern Western science. But they work. These assumptions work to enable them to create a sustainable food supply and to have done so over, you know, I don't know how many hundreds of years, maybe thousands, I don't know. They've been doing this. Um, moreover, it's a very empirically sensitive. Obviously, environments change, um, threats to geese change, threats to environments change. Um, yes, there's some traditional assumptions and beliefs here, but they have to constantly be adjusted and tested and worked out in the particular environments that uh, the Cree find themselves in. Um, so just with this brief description, um, you, I hope you can hear that they're doing empirical Science in a very important way. On the other hand, um, as other chapters show, modern Western science also has it makes different assumptions in different historical uh, moments and contexts, and we wouldn't accept. You know, we get. Uh, you know, the, the notion of retrospective reality, right? <laughs> it's only after uh, sciences have managed to settle down and solidify a phenomenon that we uh, get to identify it as a gene or an electron or a continental uh, shift. Um, so, continental plate. Um, so, once we give up the idea that somehow modern Western science is the only way we could ever uh, come to understand the world, we can start seeing the value of really reappreciating uh, indigenous knowledge. And two other things that are to be said about this. One is that whatever, eight, four-fifths of the world needs indigenous knowledge to survive on an everyday basis, and indeed we do too. Um, and there are plenty of studies that, that show this. Indigenous knowledge is valuable to indigenous peoples, uh, but it's also valuable to us. It's a constant source of new knowledge. We learn from um, indigenous people on a, on a continual, continual basis. Um, and it exposes us in the West to different conceptual assumptions and frameworks that are very strange to us, but that work. And so it hopefully introduces a notion of modesty in our own thinking about uh, whether we have the one and only right way of looking at the world. And in fact, this really nicely brings us into the next chapter. This is chapter five. Now, this is a chapter that uh, really transitions quite beautifully from our previous discussion. 
because there's an assumption that some readers um, might bring to this idea, these ideas we've been talking about in chapter four, right? And the implicit assumption is that there are kind of indigenous sciences, and then we're comparing them to modern Western science, as if modern Western science is one concrete, coherent thing. In fact, modern Western science is not necessarily one concrete, coherent thing, and it's absolutely not um, any um, less culturally embedded than the sciences that we're talking about. And in fact, that's argument four. It's not just other culture sciences that are culturally embedded. Modern Western science or sciences is very much coming out of a very particular historical cultural context. And in fact, it's quite disunified and plural, as a lot of recent historical and philosophical accounts um, have shown. So let's maybe focus in on that. Um, so the chapter takes us into the history of the philosophy of science, and it's arguing that logical positivism is really developing its particular commitments um, via a very particular political context and a political resistance specifically to McCarthyism and Cold War in uh, the 1950s U.S. Now, you take us into um, literature here from historians and philosophers of science that are arguing that, you know what, um, there's a lot of plurality and a lot of disunity in um, modern Western science as we know it now. So for you, what's most important um, for us, um, like what's most important for us to understand about this and why in the larger context of the work the book is doing is it so important to understand this disunity and plurality of modern Western science? I would say there, there are two, for me, there are two important issues here. Uh, one it, it has been thoroughly developed in, uh, I'm sure the, your, the audience will, the listeners will know George Reich's um, a wonderful history of the Carnap uh, and uh, history and analysis of the Carnap and Reichenbach correspondence in his book, um, How the Cold War Transformed the Philosophy of Science, colon, to the icy slopes of logic. Um, and this is, he, Reich is not the only person to pursue those kinds of issues. Nancy Cartwright and her colleagues had uh, been doing it, and, and several other people have, um, historians and philosophers of science have, have noticed how deeply um, the older Enlightenment notions were transformed in the 19, when they encountered uh, McCarthyism in the Cold War. Um, and so the importance here is to see that, the issue here is to see that the particular ways that um, uh, a philosophy of science came to think about the unity of science were responses to political threats and of course, um, in the Gallison and Stump collection, the disunity of science, um, Ian Hacking points out that there, the notion unity of science has, I forget what it is, 15 meanings, right? They're metaphysical meanings, they're methodological meanings, and so forth. Um, the logical positivists in Vienna had meant by it not the reduction, by the unity of science, not the reduction of uh, all sciences to one science, namely uh, for, for which physics would be the model, but rather the gathering together, the, the, um, uh, the ur uh, they were being urged, scientists were being urged to direct their attention to the social problems facing Germany and Austria at that moment that were being quote-unquote solved in hideous ways 
by the rise of Nazism and, and, and fascism. So unity here meant a kind, a kind of harmony, maybe, or a kind of collective uh, action, a kind of uh, convergence of different scientific um, resources on solving the social problems that Germany faced. Um, so I, so, but then when the Vienna Circle comes to the U.S., um, it the notion of unity of science takes on uh, a, a much more reductionist notion. Of course, Carnap had some of these uh, ideas earlier, but um, not all of the Vienna Circle did. So here we get to see just in a very short period of time how the notion of unity versus disunity shifts in the same group, for the same group of scientists. The other um, interesting point here, I think, uh, and Gallison raises, uh, Destin and Gallison raise it in their introduction in a, a certain way, is that the meanings of unity and disunity differ at different moments in history. And what I would say is that at this moment in history, to um, the social justice movements, Unity means enforced assimilation of their of Native American, of women's, of uh, African American ways of thinking into the dominant ways of thinking, and destruction of their own knowledge systems. So uh, unity here is an authoritarian appears as a kind of authoritarian assimilation demand. And disunity appears to them as, to them and us, as um, the right to have respect for the kinds of ways of gaining knowledge that have been, that have proved valuable in our experience. Um, and so for the social justice movements, unity, a unity argument seems to be an authoritarian demand. Of course, uh, the very notion of the unity of science has been, you know, vigorously undermined from within the philosophy of science for a long time. Indeed, those two recent collections of papers I mentioned uh, assume that, as you pointed out, uh, there is no such thing as a unified science. It's disunified and scientific pluralism, uh, it, in fact, is what exists. But I think the two important things to think of here are well, it's really one important thing in two contexts. How the notions of unity and disunity shift in different historical eras. And that happened for the mainstream uh, philosophy of science movement itself. And it certainly is the case now with respect to the social justice movements. They understand the demand for unity is a demand to assimilate and give up their valuable ways of knowing. Thank you so much. Now, as we move um, from that chapter to the next chapter, we also move from argument four, which we just talked about, to the fifth argument. Religious and spiritual experiences, beliefs, and interests are not necessarily damaging to the reliability of scientific research results, right? This is a, another bold and important claim. So chapter six looks critically, as it explores this argument, at the investment of modern Western sciences in an idea of secularism. It asks and answers a very important question. Can knowledge systems that are embedded in religious and spiritual practices and beliefs still be objective? Well, the answer is yes, and the chapter is going to argue for this over 
the course of a really fascinating um, series of descriptions and discussions. So one of the things that's um, very important, I think, to this chapter is that it's arguing that secularism, the particular, well, first of all, that secularism is always conceptualized within religious understandings of the world, and that the particular kind of secularism that animates the modern Western sciences is specifically Christian. Okay, so can you talk a little bit about that for listeners, specifically um, kind of with an eye to what's important about this for the larger argument that this chapter is making, and for you, what's um, really some of the most important stuff that's happening um, around this argument, the argument for taking religious and spiritual beliefs seriously as part of an objective science? Well, let me begin by point, uh, by mentioning two two things I found very puzzling about 10 years ago. One was uh, I had an, I have had a number of Muslim, secular Muslim students and my graduate students in my classes. We have a lot of secular Muslims and, and religious uh, observant Muslims at UCLA. Um, and um, when in one class, a young woman a uh, fourth-year graduate student, third or fourth-year graduate student uh, from, uh, where was she from? Uh, Malaysia, I think. Um, she said she was secular. She wasn't an observant Muslim, but she couldn't imagine giving up her Muslim commitments. And there was just a pause in the seminar room. And the truth of what she was saying just struck us all. I mean, I don't know who was observant in that classroom and who wasn't, uh, but I do know there were people from Catholic backgrounds and Protestant and Jewish, Muslim. Uh, there was some uh, Chinese, so I don't know. You know, I don't know if there were Buddhist backgrounds or what else. Um, so, and I puzzled what how to think about that for a while. At the same time, I was reading post-colonial literatures and. This kind of phrase would keep appearing in people like, for example, uh, the Indian um, uh, philosopher, historian of science, Ashish Nandi, uh, the Third World Network, that group that he was a part of that formed in Jakarta about 40 years ago. They would, the phrase would be the hideous secularism of Western science. And I didn't know what that meant. What do they mean, the hideous secularism of Western science? And um, then, a, as a, primarily as a response, I believe, uh, after 9-11, um, the Islamophobic responses to 9-11, okay, so as a response to those is Islamophobic responses, um, the a, a good-sized discussion broke out um, in the um, social science networks in, in particular um, about secularism. And there were special issues of journals on it and so forth. And it got very clear to me that, um, so I'm moving now to why that's why this is important for this book. For one thing, that secularism is itself a positive cultural, positive and or negative, but a distinctively a specific cultural force on the history of science. It's not the absence of such a force, which is how I had been taught to think of it. If it's secular, it's not religious. There's no, no cultural values or interests there. Rather, because secularisms are always come, are always constructed within religions to be a secular 
Jew is very different from being a secular Protestant or Muslim. Indeed, every re religion identifies um, exactly what you have to do to be secular the minute it specifies what you have to do to be observant. So if you don't, if you're not observant in the ways um, that your uh, particular brand of Catholicism demands, then you're secular. So secularisms are always constituted from the beginnings inside particular religious worlds. Um, so both religion and secularism, it turns out, have been influences on the history of science. And of course, on um, They've had positive effects in some contexts and negative effects in other contexts. Of course, the historians of science that we're all familiar with had always noted this. Um, Max Faber talking about the Protestant work ethic, how it guides modern Western sciences. Um, Margaret Jacob and other historians uh, of the Renaissance and early modern era talking about how um, devotion to scientific method uh, was always articulated by scientists of the era as the opportunity to know God's mind in even greater detail. And they said that whether they believed it or not, evidently. Um, and, of course, Joseph Needham, uh, pointed out the differences between uh, Chinese and pointing out the differences between Chinese science and Western science. Points out that only the West believed that the order of the natural world was created by a mind far greater than our own that also created our own minds. And there, it's for that reason that Western scientists regarded the world as knowable by us. Is that a positive effect on the uh, <laughs> on scientific um, advance of scientific knowledge or what? So not only has religion had positive effects on the history of science, um, but secularism is itself a specific cultural um, uh, force on science for better and worse. Um, finally, there are many things that Western sciences, philosophies of science, have objected to with respect to indigenous knowledge. But one very important one has always been that m much of it, most of it, is always is embedded within cultural beliefs and specifically religious beliefs. Uh, and modern Western science was itself invented in part to disenchant the world. And here are all these indigenous groups who still uh, practice their knowledge-seeking, um, grounded in assumptions that the world is still enchanted. Um, so to, def to defeat the idea, uh, it's, so it's important for understanding the indigenous knowledge <laughs> issues uh, to see that the um, assumption that they alone uh, have religious, are shaped by religious uh, values and interests is false, and that you know, because modern Western secularisms are also um, embedded in particular deep religious assumptions, uh, and that we need to just rethink the whole relationship between religion and spirituality on the one hand and knowledge-seeking on the other hand. Perfect. Thank you so much. Um, so we, as we move toward the end of our time, um, I just want to mark that 
one obvious implication, right, or, or a set of obvious implications here from what we've um, just been talking about, touch on how we understand creationism and intelligent design in terms of curricula and teaching. We need some basis for saying why something should be taught over others in some contexts. And this chapter does a really sensitive, um, very clear and very careful job at thinking through and arguing about these particular issues. So there's a, a really, really useful and a really interesting treatment of that particular problem and set of implications that listeners will find in Chapter 6. So there's a whole other chapter that we won't have time to talk about in detail, but I'll just mark it for listeners because it's awesome. Um, this is a chapter, Chapter 7, that looks at the sixth argument. Um, this is a, the argument that the arguments we've been talking about really align with the insights of science studies. This chapter proposes a new notion of a proper scientific self um, that's really demanded by new sciences from below and these new sciences that we've been talking about. Now, the notion of a proper scientific self um, in this new context can take uh, multiple forms, and one of the things that this chapter does is give us an idea of, you know, possible new scientific selves that might emerge out of this new way of thinking objectivity and thinking diversity and thinking um, them in relation. Um, these scientific selves include multiple and conflicted subjectivities, and they include a kind of a, an attentiveness to positionality of the self and positionality of the researcher. Finally, um, Chapter 7, in its conclusion, takes on the notion of big science, proposes a really big science, and then really, really big science that might come out of really thinking through and thinking with these arguments um, and these ways of mobilizing objectivity and diversity as part of a common conversation and a common whole. So, Sandra, there are a million billion things that we haven't had a chance to talk about. It's an exceptionally important and exceptionally rich book that we've only barely introduced in the, co in the course of this hour. Um, but given that, is there anything in particular that we didn't have time to talk about but that you'd like to mention for listeners, and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had an opportunity to become readers? I guess only that I've tried very hard to make this readable uh, to upper-level undergraduates and um, graduate students in any field. Um, uh, that's, you know, I know we always think we do that and the poor students stumble, <laughs> stumble through. Um, but I've, I do it by lecturing everything I write <laughs> many times before it actually gets into a finished form on the page. So I, I think this could be a very, te I'm hoping it's a t teachable volume that is usable uh, in particularly methods classes, but probably, I mean, I would like to see it used in a freshman writing class. I think freshmen would be fascinated by the kind of scandalousness of chapters on secularism and women in development and, and whatnot. Um, so I, I hope it uh, is useful to scholars and also to future generations of scholars. So I'll just say as a plug for that, I am definitely going to be teaching with this. Um, and I think um, one of the book is extraordinarily clear. It's written for an audience who doesn't, I mean, let me rephrase that. An audience who comes to this who doesn't have any background in philosophy of science will find it completely clear and will find it completely unproblematic to understand what's going on and why it's important. And that's so rare to find, right, in a philosophy of um, science book. I mean, especially one that's, um, written at this level. So I think 
um, any listeners who are interested in particular at assigning books that have something to do with contemporary um, sort of politically, socially, culturally relevant aspects of science studies who want something that's going to be a basis on which to start conversations in class, right, to have something that's really going to be able to be taken up um, as a basis for productive, active, vibrant discussion, um, definitely think of this book because I can even imagine freshmen doing that um, with this book. And that's a really tough um, thing to accomplish here, and you've really done that. So, Sandra, now that you've accomplished that um, and written this fabulous book, what's next for you? What is currently um, inspiring you, and what are you working on now? Well, I'm, I'm very excited um, by the new work I've plunged into. I'm working on the Latin American decoloniality challenges to modern Western philosophies of science. And let me just say a couple sentences to um, situate this project. Um, I edited the Postcolonial Science and Technology Studies Reader in 2011 and was astonished to discover shortly after it was published that I had pretty much neglected Latin America, that the conventional post-colonial literature tends to be highly focused on the British Empire and to some extent the French um, in East Asia and in in South Asia and in um, uh, Africa. Uh, But of course, colonialism began three centuries before the British occupied India and four centuries before the Belgians entered the Congo. It began in 1492, roughly speaking. Um, And so colonialism in the Americas uh, was... Uh, occurred almost simultaneously with the construction of modernity in Europe as a um, as a self image of the Europeans who had found who had discovered this Eden across the Atlantic, this Garden of Eden with all the savages who lived in it, quote unquote. Um, so decolonial theory styles itself, coming from Latin America, styles itself as a slightly rebellious younger sibling of post-colonial theory, and it's fascinating. Most, uh, I don't know about most of it, a huge amount of it is now in English. And so I have uh, three committed public publications coming out of this. One will be a um, review essay on the decolonial uh Latin American decolonial challenges to modern Western uh, philosophy of science. And I'm particularly excited about this, too, because uh, 4S, the Society for the Social Studies of Science, as uh, you all know, met in Buenos Aires in, uh, a year ago in August. Um, and 4S has had a huge international outreach in uh, recent years, which is excellent. It's met in Asia, uh, now in Latin America, co-sponsored with an equivalent organization in Latin America, Social Studies of Science Organization, uh, ECOSEAT. And um, pieces of this decolonial, some of this decolonial thinking um, is filtering into the publications that uh, came out uh, simultaneously with that meeting in Buenos Aires. Um, so there's a wonderful collection of papers by from MIT Press uh, called Beyond Imported Magic, uh, 
and there's a slightly earlier special issue of um, Science, Technology, and Human Values uh, that's on uh, Latin American uh uh, Latin American Social Studies of Science, and I'm sure there are going to be lots of publications coming out of this wonderful new connections that, that we're making with uh, Latin America. And of course, um, I live in a state where the f- first language now is Spanish, the, f- for the uh, largest group of people uh, language is Spanish, uh, Latinas, uh, and of course Los Angeles is even more um, Latin American than other cities. It's probably the, I don't know, is it the only major city in the United States where candidates for the Mexican presidency campaign? They come to Los Angeles, <laughs> campaign in Los Angeles for the president of Mexico. So um, for all kinds of uh, hideous imperial reasons, as well as current uh, interesting new connections, I think uh, familiarizing ourselves with this new decolonial literature coming out of Latin America and the way it affects um, social studies of science is a very important kind of project for us to do and I'm working with um, a variety of other of fundamentally Latin American studies scholars from different places um, in trying to put together some some useful ways uh, for us to move forward in thinking about this um, so I'm very excited by this work um, and looking forward to doing more of it well, it sounds fantastic. So best of luck with that work. Um, call me when you have that book out, if it comes out like a book, okay. uh, as a book, and we'll talk about that too. But in the meantime, thanks so much for making time, Sandra. It's a fabulous book, and it was really great to talk with you about it. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was a wonderful interview for me. Thank you. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you again next time.